Hi, my name is David Mendez, your host on the Papa PhD podcast. If you're new to the show, welcome. Make yourself comfortable. If you're a regular, thank you for being here for another conversation about the PhD. This week on Papa PhD, I'm discussing a fictional book, a thriller set within academia with author Amy Gentry. In our conversation, I talked with Amy about her personal experience going through a PhD in the humanities and about what aspects of that experience inspired her to write Bad Habits. You talk about the preparation for, um, for different paths that are not academic in grad school. And I would say in humanities PhD programs, until very, very recently, since I left, <laughs> even, um, there was nothing. Because there just aren't, it's not like there are job postings for people with, with uh, English PhDs. Uh, I mean, the only job postings for people with English PhDs are English professor. That's it. No one else wants you to have a PhD. Um, I mean, at best, they don't care one way or the other. <laughs> But it often seems to count almost as a detriment in the humanities because people think, well, you're overeducated. You don't really want to be here. Um, And I think that's, you know, changing now. I mean, I had a professor at University of Chicago who has really been working with people at, at the University of Chicago to make sure that there's career counseling for people coming out of those types of uh, graduate programs. So I know there is change happening. At the same time, I think it's really hard to argue that a PhD is actually necessary for any of those paths. By the time someone has come six years through a program that has battered them financially and emotionally, almost certainly hoping to be a professor at the end and then find out at the end that there's no, there's no ring, there's, no, there's nothing to grab there because the jobs just aren't there. I mean, yeah, I mean, by that point, career counseling is triage, <laughs> like you're picking someone up off the floor. Welcome to Papa PhD with David Mendez, the podcast where we explore careers and life after grad school with guests who have walked the road less traveled and have unique stories to tell about how they made their place in a world of constantly evolving rules. Get ready to go off the beaten path and hop on for an exciting new episode of Papa PhD. Welcome to this week's episode of Papa PhD. Today I have the pleasure of having with me Amy Gentry. Amy Gentry is the author of Good Is Gone, a New York Times notable book, Last Woman Standing, and Bad Habits. She is also a book reviewer and essayist whose work has appeared in numerous outlets, including the Chicago Tribune, Salon, the Paris Review, the Los Angeles Review of Books, and the Austin Chronicle. She holds a PhD in English from the University of Chicago and lives in Austin, Texas. Welcome to Papa PhD, Amy. Thank you so much, David. I'm happy to be here. I'm really happy to have you on the show, and I really want to talk about your PhD journey and how it led to your writing career and to your latest book, Bad Habits. That is a thriller set in kind of a parallel universe to the one you experienced going through grad school. <laughs> yeah, um, that is often the way I talk about the book, um, because it's set in a program somewhat similar in certain ways to the one that I went through. But um, the plot of the book is about a character named Mac, 
we meet Mac when she's at the top of her game. She's a professor, a sort of newly minted professor, rising quickly in the ranks, not yet having tenure, but um, soaring to the top. And uh, she's just done a keynote at a big conference when she runs into her old friend unexpectedly in the hotel lobby. And Gwen Whitney, as we soon find out, was her sort of um, best friend growing up and they were in the program together, the graduate program. Mm -hmm. And something has happened and they've become estranged and we don't know what. So when she meets Gwen, this immediately takes her back to this territory she might rather have forgotten. And she spends uh, the course of the book trying to ascertain whether Gwen knows what really happened together when they were in the program. Um, and we do that through flashbacks. So mm -hmm. we see her, most of the book takes place in that graduate program where we see how catastrophe strikes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Okay. And, uh, and so it's a, it's a, a travel back to grad school. To, 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 or yeah, it, it it sort of goes back. It starts back with Max's childhood. Actually, we mm -hmm. it's a it, it gives you kind of the background on her family and how she came to meet Gwen and sort of she comes from Matt comes from a harder hard scrabble background, a working class background okay. where graduate school would be very distant from her goals. Mm -hmm. And Gwen sort of enters her life in her high school years and is this sort of glamorous from a cultured and refined family. She has money, she's beautiful, and she's extremely smart and always seems to know where, you know, the best place to go is. Mm -hmm. So because of her, you know, Max's life changes and she fixes all her aspirations of, of getting out onto this one friend mm -hmm. and sort of ends up um, working really hard to change herself and become someone who can get into this kind of top PhD program. So by the time they get into this program together, they have a lot of history already, but they get there um, sort of ripe for <laughs> intrigue, I guess, especially Mac, who's really vulnerable to um, the cult of personality professors, to the manipulation and the sort of backstabbing. And, um, you know, Mac has extreme ambition and sort mm -hmm. of part of the book is watching how that happens. Okay. Um, and yeah, and, and I think of it as a making of a villain story. Mm -hmm. um, I love villains. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that doesn't give too much away, but I think very quickly you start to see that Mac although from uh, hopefully understandable motives, begins behaving very badly in this environment. Okay, I, I'm, it, it sounds super, super interesting. Uh, we're going to get back to, to elements of the book uh, in our conversation. Now, uh, we've, we've been talking about Mac. Now, talk, let's talk about Amy Gentry. So, PhD in English, and, and now uh, you're writing, uh, you're, you're uh, doing book, book reviews. Can you talk about... Uh, that that aspect of transitioning from academia to what you do today, but also uh, maybe, and I, I always like starting like that, uh, of what what pulled you towards doing a PhD, uh, a PhD mm -hmm. in English? How did that go also? Hmm. Well, so the first question is very easy to answer because book reviews really, I don't actually do them really anymore. Okay. Um, I mean, I would make an exception if the New York Times called. <laughs> um, but I, now that I'm actually writing books of my own, um, I find that it's better to be a little bit 
uh, pulled back from that um, to avoid conflicts of interest and just that kind of thing. So I, however, book reviewing was a really important part of my transition because when I came out of the PhD program in, oh, 2010, I think, um, I just didn't really know what skills I could use mm-hmm. going forward. And I, the only thing I really had, you know, was this extremely critical eye and the ability and interest to write about books, you know, mm-hmm. ad infinitum. <laughs> so I, I started pitching and I also had, um, I think my very first book review, I, or maybe my second or third anyway, I had a friend from graduate school actually who knew an editor in Chicago at the Tribune at the time. And so that was another kind of connection. They were looking for reviewers. He emailed me and said, Hey, would you like to try reviewing for this outlet? So um, I was able to really use my, you know, whatever I had from grad school as a kind of transition and use that critical eye, but for a general audience and reading, um, you know, reading uh, contemporary fiction instead of uh, <laughs> instead of Henry James and Frank mm-hmm. Norris and whatever I was studying in, in grad school. Uh, and, and it was a really comfortable transition for me. It put me into the present day. It gave me an audience where I was actually being read by people in the world. And um, yeah, and it also gave me an opportunity to interview a lot of authors. Mm-hmm. which I had never done before, but I was, I was interested in and have always wanted to write novels. So interviewing these authors, I would often start to sneak in questions about mm-hmm. how, you know, how, how did you get your first novel published? <laughs> and I learned a lot just by being around them and asking questions. Very, very interesting. And um, because, because I come from the STEM side of things, uh, you know, transition for people coming from STEM looks like, you know, looks like uh, you know industry or medical writing. There's, there's for me at least, it feels like there's a straighter path to uh, to a non-academic uh, job, to a non-academic career. But uh, I, I must confess for, that for me, for me, because I haven't experienced it, uh, the, the 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 humanities and the the you know uh you did english english studies it, it it's not e- as easy for me to see uh, how how these paths go i i've also learned in, in conversations that more people stay in or around academia but it seems like you kind of uh, just to clarify you started started doing this while you were still in graduate school or, no, or was it after? not really. Oh, not no, really. Okay, okay. no, no. I, I in fact what happened is i i graduated in 2010. I'm again. I can't quite remember. 2010 or 11. One of long, those. Long <laughs> it's been a while. <laughs> um, but I, one of the reasons I can't remember very well is because I had already moved down to Austin, which okay. um, I, I, you know, I went to grad school in Chicago. Austin was always my hometown. It's where I went to undergraduate. Um, I had a lot of friends who stayed in Austin. It's a very pleasant place to be, and it was always kind of my happy place. So toward the end of my dissertation when I was really struggling in grad school Mm -hmm. and with motivation and depression, I just decided that I was going to move to Austin and try to finish there because I had finished all my commitments, teaching commitments. And so I was already living in Austin and living with my, you know, then future husband, now current husband, yeah, something. (laughs) (laughs) I was already living uh, with my husband and feeling a lot happier. And I was able to finish the dissertation under those conditions. Mm -hmm. It was still not easy, but I did finish and defend. Um, 
so yeah, I, but by the time I defended, I had already basically figured out, mostly figured out that I did not want to go on the market a mm-hmm. second time. I had been on the market once for an academic job in, I guess that would be 2009 and 10. Mm-hmm. And just, it was horrible that year. There were no jobs. I sent out I don't know how many letters mm-hmm. and and heard nothing back and felt completely awful. And uh and even just then I I had already also gotten the a better understanding of what it would mean to get an academic job. Mm-hmm. I had friends who had been doing um postdocs and adjuncting and taking year or two year gigs for years out of grad school, yeah. you know, 5 or 10 years at that point. Back to back. And yeah, and um, moving every two years or oh one my, year. Yeah. <laughs> and I just, and then all the jobs I was applying to, some of the, you know, the plum jobs would <laughs> would involve sometimes going somewhere really remote. Mm. And I just found myself picturing my life, freshly having moved back to Austin, where I was so happy and living with my husband, who had been in Austin this whole time, mm-hmm. and having so many friends for the first time. I just thought... I don't really want to go to Iowa or Montana or, or even Chicago or New York necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to stay here. Uh, so that motivated my, I guess, mm-hmm. uh, my leaving or my not pursuing academia again. But yeah. after that, I, had to, I didn't know what I was going to do. When I made the decision to not, to not go on the market, I did not have a plan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I'm trying to tell you. <laughs> Yeah, and I, I think a lot of us, uh, because we go th- in, in, into grad school, s- some of us yes, some of us no, but straight from whatever com- came before, uh, the master's, let's say, uh, and we just go through the moves of, of doing the PhD. And because uh, things are, sli- are changing slowly, but a lot of grad schools and programs don't um, train people for the transition. You get to oh. that last year. <laughs> well, whichever yeah. idea popped to your mind, keep it because I want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. you're, it's only at the la- in the last year, like, oh, I should look at something else. What is there? You don't have the vocabulary. You don't. You you know. You haven't looked at job postings. You haven't talked with people, and it can be scary, right? In your case, you moved. You know, you moved closer and, and to li- to live with your future, to your with your now husband. You you got a, a like a social network, so there was a lot of positive in that physical t- moving places, which then I guess led to a, a space of okay, now I can look, uh, I can look around and see what I can do. A lot of people, depending, uh, you know, and, and it's funny you, you're talking. We're talking about Mac being a first a first generation. Uh, a PhD, they can't really go to family to ask for advice. It, it can be very, very uh, stressful and and uh, anxiety generating. This situation of getting to the end of your graduate school and now realizing, oh, I'm not going to be doing research or I'm not going to be a professor. What am I going to be? <laughs> but uh, it seems like you you found your path because also you found this environment in Austin that was conducive to to being peaceful inside yeah i mean i well a few things i mean one one thing you talk about the preparation for um for different paths Mm -hmm. that are not academic in grad school and i would say in humanities phd programs until very very recently since i left Mm -hmm. (laughs) even um there was nothing 
because there just aren't, it's not like there are job postings for people with, with uh, English PhDs. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, the only job postings for people with English PhDs are English professors. Mm-hmm. That's it. Mm-hmm. No one else wants you to have a PhD. Um, I mean, at best, they don't care one way or the other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but it often seems to count almost as a detriment in the humanities because people think, well, you're overeducated. You don't really want to be here. Um, and I think that's, you know, changing now. I mean, I had a professor at University of Chicago who has, you know, been um, the DGS and and since then several other positions, but who has really been working with people at, at the University of Chicago to make sure that there's career counseling mm-hmm. for people coming out of those types of uh, graduate programs. So I know there is change happening. At the same time, I think it's really hard to argue that a PhD is actually necessary for any of those paths. It almost seems more like um, triage work. Mm-hmm. By the time someone has come six years through a program that has battered them financially and emotionally, and in which they have specialized so much that they've actually kind of specialized past the more mainstream um, professional, mm-hmm. I don't know, uh, world. And, uh, and then by the time they've gotten to all that way, probably, I mean, almost certainly hoping to be a professor at the end and then mm-hmm. find out at the end that there is no there's no ring, there's yeah. no, there's nothing to grab there because the jobs just aren't there. I mean, yeah, I mean, by that point, career counseling is triage. <laughs> like you're picking someone up off the floor. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, to me, I have a lot of feelings about that and opinions, but um, I can't really speak to the overall situation, you know, because I just don't know enough. And it's been a while since I was in that position, but I can talk about my personal experience yeah. and I don't have any problem talking about that. Um, I entered the PhD program and um, was very, very high energy and very excited about it. I was grateful to be there. I did not just do it by rote. I was inflamed with passion for ideas and really gave it my all. And I was very successful. And even so, after several years of this, particularly after, um, you know, after the exams, I think it started during the exams, frankly, Mm -hmm. because it's a very isolating time when you're going into your reading phase. I started to notice that other students were you know, people were behaving very oddly Mm -hmm. (laughs) as the stress began to hammer down on everyone around the same time. People started um, behaving differently toward each other um, and being less, there was just less friendship and fun to be had and more lonely anxiety. Mm -hmm. And, um, And then after that kind of going into the dissertation phase, I don't think anything can really prepare you for the dissertation phase. Um, It's, again, I think it's different in the, you know, it's really different in the humanities. I don't know what it's like for STEM um, PhDs, but in the humanities, (laughs) it's just a very kind of wild and woolly world out there. (laughs) You know, uh, you're really just alone with your thoughts. You're not going to a lab. You're not obtaining measurable results. Mm -hmm. Usually you're just reading a lot and trying to think and trying to make an idea out of that. Mm -hmm. Um, And there's not a lot of um, built in, you don't understand the value of social connection during that time until it's just already feels like it's beyond repair Mm -hmm. and and 
lost. Um, so yeah, I'm not the, I'm certainly not the only <laughs> PhD candidate who's ever gotten to that phase and suddenly found themselves almost like before I knew it. I mean, a lot of, there were a lot of sad times, but I'm used, I'm resilient. Mm-hmm. I'm used to sad times. You know, I, I work harder. That's what we do. Right. <laughs> but there was just, there came this time when I was suddenly like, wow, I can't get out of my chair. I can't get up mm-hmm. and go get ready and go teach my class downtown at this, you know, the, the community college where I was teaching. I can't, um, you know, I can't get in the shower. Like there were just, it happened like that to the experience of it was that by the time I was, by the time I knew I was depressed, I was already really in it. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. So it was uh, cumulative. Also, yeah. It was cumulative, but you didn't notice the first steps, and then when you noticed, it was already at a more acute stage. Yeah. Yes, and I think it's that's partly I think because not to lay the blame for everything on grad school, but I do think there's a certain degree of misery is normalized in mm-hmm. those programs, at least if it's a top competitive program. I mean, University of Chicago, their motto for the undergrads. Do you know it? Nope. Uh, the undergrads have a motto there, the University of Chicago, where fun comes to die. Oh, my. <laughs> and they have it on T-shirts in the gift shop. Jeez. So there's a kind of, yeah, and that's the attitude that, you know, I mean, not every program to be sure, but this kind of um, rigorous, you know, sort of priding itself on academic rigor, they literally make it part of their selling package Mm -hmm. that this is the place where you go to be miserable. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when you're starting to feel that, you know, the winters are long, the, you know, you're cold, you're broke, you know, and you're just dragging yourself from here to there, trying to finish this, these chapters that like nobody, like, let's be real. Nobody really wants to read them. When you do finish them and give them to your advisor, they may not give them back to you for six or eight weeks. You know, it's just like, it's easy to be like, well, this is, you know, this is right where I should be. This is how this, this is the experience. This is what all PhDs feel. And it, it, I mean, it, it is true that a lot of them do, but that's not okay. <laughs> no, yeah. no, it's true that by definition, the PhD, you know, you need to create something original, you know, new to the to the the subject uh, to to your subject uh, area. Uh, so there is a part of by design of of uh, of being solitary in that aspect. But then once you get socially isolated. Uh, once you're in your mind all the time, and and um, th- that's where where it becomes dangerous, and and it's true that the graduate school, even like in STEM, it, and it, it I think it expresses in a different way because it's not being uh, just you be in front of a blank page and with a bunch of books uh, around you. It's being at the at the lab for you know 60 80 hours a week and mm-hmm. not having a social life there's different ways it's it expresses in different domains i'm sure but um one one thing that I, that usually uh people when i when we talk about this that people say that help them is having a community outside of with whatever is their graduate school work uh i've i know i've known people who had who did theater you know uh, I've, people who had who did art and then or or sports uh but again if you're already too far too far into this kind of 
slope towards depression it, it can be hard to even just go out of uh, of your of your apartment and interact with other people how did you how did you get out of that uh, of, of that uh, like kind of low point let's say well i think um you're absolutely right i think that having outside um, contacts and a life outside of grad school is so important. And it, I mean, it just never happened for me. I was a very social person in grad school. We, mm -hmm. you know, my cohort was very social with each other, but I think there's a point at which you just have to have people outside of that world. You have to mm -hmm, mm -hmm. <laughs> for perspective, if nothing else. Um, and it's really hard. Yeah, it's of course, it's hard to do during grad school. Where, where are you going to look for people? You know, what are you going to do? Go to a play and then like, just introduce yourself to the person you're sitting next to, <laughs> you know, it's, unless you, it, it almost requires, you know, I think you have to maybe look for activities or look for something, um, some kind of group classes or something mm -hmm. to meet someone. But uh, usually you're so busy and tied up in your own work. You don't feel like there's room for that. Yeah. Um, for me, uh, moving to Austin was really that the was thing. Okay. Yeah. Because I had a ready-made, I mean, my family is in Texas. I, it's my, old familiar places. I was excited to be there. And everywhere I turned, there was, you know, either a familiar face or the promise of one. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and good memories, just memories of a time when I was a person who did not care about this stuff that was consuming me in grad school. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I, I think it's, I think there are a lot of things wrapped up in this, but One of the things is that that people talk a lot about, and I think it's true, is that when you're in grad school, there is not a lot of um, credence given to the world outside. You know, the idea is that this is the most important thing. This is the only thing that's worthwhile or worthy. And your value comes from this world. And there's the people out there are doing, you know, things that are less important. <laughs> and, and they're not as, and they're pursuing shallow or boring things. Mm -hmm. But I think having a community, I mean, when I moved to Austin, and my husband is, um, he has a day job, uh, That's not his passion. However, he's always been an actor and a comic and a okay. writer. And he performs in plays and writes them and is funny and does improv and has done all these other things and had a huge community of people who in that world who were sort of artists, performers, creatives. Mm -hmm. And just seeing them, just knowing them and seeing them was so... Uh, paradigm shifting for me because it just got me out of that mindset of like, oh, everything important is in this one tiny, tiny, tiny slice of the world. <laughs> um, I could see that there were things of value being done. I could see that there was creativity and intellect and flourishing um, ideas outside of the program. Mm -hmm. And although I think I knew that intellectually on some level, it's different when you're surrounded by people that show you You know, I mean, yes, it's horrible when your advisor emails you something you, you know, don't like, mm -hmm. or there's some snag in the paperwork to get your next level or whatever. Mm. But, you know, when you just look around you and the birds are chirping and there's, you know, you can go swimming outside <laughs> or, yeah. or go to a coffee shop with a friend and talk about something else. It's just, it makes a world of difference. Yeah. You can put that negative thing on a show, on a specific drawer and you say it belongs there, but life is here. And, and yeah, and it's, it's fine. not my whole life <laughs> and it's, and my value is not 
coterminous with my work that I produce in this one context. Mm-hmm. Like, and, you know, I have value as a person that's not just an accessory to someone else's career development. You know, I mean, I'll just, I can go on forever about this, but, you know, a lot of the feelings that I came out of grad school with that I didn't even realize in the moment I was feeling, but, you know, the way our, the way advisors or certain professors would treat you as if you only exist as sort of an accessory to their career, that you need to go out there and get yourself a research one job because Mm -hmm. you'll make them look good, you know? Um, yeah, I have, you know. And that's (laughs) been a metric, right, for, for the success of professors is where they're, where yes. their, their um, graduate yes. students end up being. Uh, but again, yeah. things are, are changing, I think. Uh, they are, they are. But, it, you know, uh, me too. I, I also uh, defended in 2010. And, oh, did you? And in these 10 years, I see I see things changing and, and changing for the better. Um, uh, and, uh, yeah, now now one thing that, that I was curious about that you just said, like, uh, in passing mm-hmm. was uh, – and I, I, I'm thinking about it because I think it may relate to uh, to the book, mm-hmm. um, to Bad Habits, is you said that uh, you felt that, that at, at a certain point in graduate school, things changed between the, the, co- between the, the cohort, between the, the, the different graduate students. And I have a feeling that it has to do with competing for these positions that are scarce. Uh, was that also part of what was making you feel... Uh, more down to the towards the end of the uh, of the uh, of the phd or i'm just thinking if this was a factor and uh, maybe if there's there's a connection to to mac and uh, bad habits well there definitely is a connection um i think you know in bad habits i wanted to make it really clear even though i i frequently talk about it as a cutthroat environment it's competitive backstabbing blah 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 mm-hmm. but the the fact is in bad habits if you read the book um the the students are actually not particularly pilloried <laughs> in mm-hmm. the book mm-hmm. right um there's they're they're manipulated and so you see you see how i mean some of them are kind of have characteristics that are less pleasant or than others but you see how everyone's weakness is pulled out and intensified mm-hmm. that their their insecurities end up defining them and they be, they behave badly because they are scared and so that's kind of you know it's not that I don't want to, I'm not trying to get around this question of like, you know, how people behaved in grad school but I do want to contextualize it um, the thesis of my book, if you can say a novel has a thesis, <laughs> is that um, these systemic structures are, you know, people behave badly when they get into a place that's set up for them to behave badly, mm-hmm. where there's scarcity of resources, where there's um, a rigid hierarchical structure with little hope of advancement, and yet, you know, endless work is, is required of you because you are your work is considered to be your, the value of who you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and where cults of, cults of personality are really fostered by the structure of the academic system so that, um, you know, there are, <laughs> you know, it's a sort of a running joke in the book how loony the professors are. <laughs> um, it's, it's, I had a lot of fun with that, you know. But, you know, in graduate school, I, we used to joke about it being like a reality show where we were all, um, and they were the judges and we would laugh at their personality quirks, but we were 
aware that we had to curry favor, avoid displeasing so and so. You know, we were. You know, <laughs> I mean, it was almost a friend of mine who is in my writing book who read the book early. Uh, I mean, my writing uh, group who read the book early compared it to court politics. Mm-hmm. She said, and that to me sounded really apt. She said, "This sounds like an arcane." you know, system mm-hmm. where people are courting favor and um, dispensing favor. And that's what I wanted to capture in that in the book. So it's, it's less per se, I mean, yes, the students behave badly, but even the professors who are kind of running things, even they also have insecurities and weaknesses that have been amplified over the years in this overall structure. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I think like I, when I, when I, you know, on the ground in the in the program, you know, it can feel very alienating to have somebody who was your friend that you thought was really on your side suddenly turn to you and say, you know, have you got something to prove? Why are you, you know, like it just suddenly kind of becoming aggressive around you know, a rival or yeah, something like yeah, that. or just around milestones or having people, yeah, just having people. Um, suspicious of each other and and the professors on honestly some of them really thrived off of that mm-hmm. they thrived off of that's what the cult of personality is all about you know they sort of thrived off of people trying to get close to them and um you know there's a moment in the in the book where i think uh, it's a bethany ladd is the professor in the book mm-hmm. who's kind of the the main symbol of all this in mm. the book. She is the one who reaches out and sort of pits Mac and Gwen against each other. Okay. Along with her with her husband, her young husband, the hunky Rocky. <laughs> <laughs> uh, she's married, but she's the power, she's the power professor in this power okay. couple. And they're they're married professors. And they sort of reach out and um, sort of tap these two stars of the program and wind up sort of setting them against each other. So that's how the friendship with Gwen begins to erode. Um, But, you know, there's, there are lots of moments in the book where I show Bethany sort of toying with Mac and, and just, uh, you know, dropping little hints, like saying, all of my students are brilliant, except one. You know, things, Mm -hmm. statements Mm -hmm. like that, that I heard. I mean, these are, some of these are actually, real things that people said in graduate school, which, you know, are just kind of weird brain bombs that yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. when someone is really trying to mess with you um, or maybe not even trying, it's just what they do. Hmm. Um, but so, yeah, the, the, that's what the book is about. It's really about those moments where somebody in this case, Mac, who's really comes in really um, she's never had, she had to grow up too soon. Her father left, her mother is an addict. She's really never had the kind of parental love and care that she needed and she's really desperate for that mm-hmm. and so she really immediately kind of falls for this um this type of attention of from this advisor yeah so and that's a long answer <laughs> it's super interesting and, and yeah it does it does feel like a like a feudal uh you know type system of hierarchy uh, and of having to to um, gain favor to to then be able to you know, vie for this higher position eventually when it opens or, or what it, it's really, really in, an interesting thing. And what it makes me want to ask you is it comes from a long time ago, this culture of, you know, graduate school, PhD, become a, becoming a professor, university. Mm-hmm. 
And especially when you get to graduate school into wanting to be a professor, it gets more and more of that. When you're an undergrad, I, you know, it's another different universe. Uh, if there was a way to reshape this uh, this thing of graduate school and of, and of uh, become, being a graduate researcher, how how could things step by step become better and and further and further away from this arcane, uh, almost you know. I want to say medieval, but I don't know if it's too harsh, uh, but, you know, culture traits. Well, it does come from the medieval tradition, and it comes from a tradition of, um, you know, monastic study mm-hmm. um, in which people really did give up their entire lives. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So I don't think it's an exaggerated um, comparison. But in terms of fixing it, you know, I... <laughs> I am a writer of thrillers, not <laughs> science fiction or fantasy. <laughs> oh, okay. And part of that is because I am a lot more interested in diagnosing than I am in um, solutions. Mm-hmm. I'm just not, you know, I don't have, I think the first thing to, for at least for me to do, the first thing to do is to diagnose it and name it mm-hmm. and really be, you know, candid about it. Um, so that's kind of my goal, I think, in general, Mm -hmm. when I write, I want to find out why things happen the way they do. Mm -hmm. Um, But yeah, when I think about it, I I think part of it is just that I don't actually believe there's a utopian version of a PhD Mm -hmm. program. I'm not sure that universities are structured the way they should be for the future. Um, I see a lot of anguish in university circles, I still do have a lot of professor friends, mm-hmm. um, you know, many of whom did finally make it out of the, <laughs> out of the morass mm-hmm. and, uh, and have jobs in the universities. And uh, they worry a lot about the corporatization of the university and the, making it a consumer model where the student is a consumer and mm-hmm. yada, yada. And I think um, those worries are very well-founded because the way forward is not to make it more of a kind of capitalist corporate model. Um, But that said, I'm, I'm not sure what is, I mean, I'm not sure that there's a place for the kind of work that at least that I was doing. I'm just not sure that it, there needs to be a special set of programs for it. I know Mm -hmm. that sounds horrible, but (laughs) I, 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 if there was, it would look really different. It would look, it wouldn't just be a small minor reform. I mean, we could start by, I think we could start by, um, you know, cutting administrative and um, athletic bloat mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh, di- diverting that to, into actually hiring and paying people um, instead of exploiting their labor, which is like the vicious exploitation of adjunct labor and graduate labor is something I don't even go into really in the book well. because I didn't have time or room. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, it's, a, it's the height of hypocrisy for all of these um, especially in uh, humanities, which are still largely dominated by Marxist and post-Marxist thinking, mm-hmm. um, it is the height of hypocrisy to believe that this model is working when it, it functions on starvation wages mm-hmm. for the vast majority of the labor pool. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's just, I think, yeah. So if I had to address like one, the first thing I would say is just fix the structure so that people who work get paid. And don't have to starve <laughs> or be rich. You know, I mean, the, the other thing that that does, as in um, other culture industries, is it only um, it makes it only 
um, accessible for people who already have wealthy parents, mm-hmm. so stream of income, subsidizing their studies. So yeah. it's just a really, to me, that's a real sickness at the heart of the PhDs, mm-hmm. you know, the PhD model. It's a really great point. And one thing I feel is each time I talk with someone who has a PhD in humanities, you know, and and they're doing something different, Clearly, they're doing something different because they're thinkers, and they developed a lot of that thinking capacity, that deep thinking capacity in graduate school. To a certain extent, uh, th- there's there are things you, you do learn in graduate school, although maybe you, you don't need to go through some of the suffering that you do to learn them. But, um, you know, working in, in different in consulting companies or in banks, and then, you know, Chris Humphrey, my first guest of the season, he works in, uh, in uh, this... Um, equitable in equitable banking i think that's the term in 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 the uk and he has a phd in medieval uh you know medieval history uh it's uh, here we go back to medieval i don't know it's a theme today uh <laughs> now yeah uh i i think the point that you said and we were getting to the end of the interview of just making and i again i'm going to repeat myself making the experience of being in grad, grad school equitable for everyone who's who wants to to do it uh, is definitely one starting point and then uh once that is that is done there'll probably be more diversity in graduate school in who goes and eventually diversity in who is professor and eventually may you know maybe that is is one way culture can change because you'll you'll bring in people whose brains are wired differently who's you know who have a different culture different way of thinking things and maybe that that's the way maybe that's the way make it make it as accessible you know to uh, make make it the same oh my gosh i'm 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 trying to find my words and i can't but make it accessible to everyone in the same manner and then make people be able to to live uh to live with wages that are okay you know that are realistic for sure is i think it's a good starting point uh, Amy. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I think it's, there's a lot of eventuallys in that. Yeah, and, yeah. And I, and I, I kind of feel like, yeah, there's other things that should be done, but I will, I will accept it as a first step. <laughs> it's it's such a it's such a big a big task, and uh, I just wanted to kind of touch upon it a little bit based on on what you're saying, Amy. Um, we ended up really not talking about a, a lot about bad habits, although we did, uh, and and we we I think people have a, have an idea of. Of what the the adventure <laughs> they're going they're getting into if they when they start reading the book is, and um, and uh, it sounds interesting. Now, if they if people want to get the book, where can they get it, get it? Um, it's available everywhere. It's on all the usual sites: Amazon, Bookshop. Uh, Houghton Mifflin is the one that put it out, okay. so it's available on their website too. It's uh, yeah. If you if you don't see it in your local indie, give them a call and ask them to order it in special for you. But mm-hmm. a lot of the indies have it as well, and I always encourage people to buy from their local independent bookstore whenever possible. It's a great, um, it's a great one. Yep, yeah. it's true. Uh, now, if people were piqued, you know, your, their interest was piqued by what you, what you said, or by your path, your 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 journey towards being a writer. They want to know a little bit more about writing, or maybe about uh, um, you know book reviewing. They want to get the possibility of talking with you. How's how do they reach out to you? What's the best way? 
Um, well, they can go to my website. It's www.amy-gentry.com. So mm -hmm. Um And there's a contact form on the website site so that I'll, I'll get it there. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter at Unlanded Gentry. Mm -hmm. And I'm also on Instagram there. And I do, I am on Twitter a lot, <laughs> probably to my work's detriment, but I'm there a lot. So you can always hit me up there. Um, and yeah, I think those are the two best ways. And I love to talk about transitioning into novel writing. It is a really, on its own, a very fascinating area. And I love to give advice on it. So um, please hit me up. And also, if I just want to deliver a message out there to any one in any form of PhD program, if you feel like you have a novel inside you, just write it. <laughs> you don't have to wait. You don't have to wait until you can't get an academic job. Start writing it now and, and hit me up and, uh, and, and maybe you can make your dream come true now. That's, that's great. That, and also, given that you're talking to people who are still maybe in grad school, mm -hmm. uh, based on what we talked about, and uh, you said you're a th you know you're you're writing thrillers. You're not writing science fiction, but um, you know everyone right now is still and 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 academia is suffering with with COVID with the pandemic. People, mm. some people not being able to meet their colleagues and you know and go to lab. Uh, hiring freezes, uh, here, you know, left and right. Do you have some words? Uh, for, for for people who are going through these difficulties, or maybe difficulties that that uh, look like what you went through uh, by by the end of your PhD, some words of comfort and inspiration, maybe. I would say that just know that you're not alone. It's not you. It's not fair. This is happening um, in the big world, and um, the system wasn't great to begin with before the pandemic hit. So please be easy on yourself if you possibly can be. And uh, when you feel bad and you have a moment of setback, rejection, sadness, just do something nice for yourself. Buy something that makes you happy. Go take a bath. Mm -hmm. Do something nice. Um, my philosophy in the end of grad school and also transitioning into writing novels, it's the same, is um, always carrots, never sticks. So I know you need to motivate yourselves to finish your program, and I hope you do that. Um, and I wish you good luck doing it. But um, just focus on those carrots, those rewards, and put away the sticks. They don't work. That's awesome. Uh, Amy, thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for your time. Um, and, and thanks for sharing uh, you know, your story. And uh, and for giving us a small peek in inside bad habits, I think it's it's probably very interesting. I think all of us who've gone to grad school must have, you know, a moment in the book where we're going to say, "Oh yeah, I I saw this happen for sure." Uh, <laughs> I know you will. Yeah, <laughs> and uh, you know, just listening to some of the things you mentioned, you know, I definitely had some moments where I was like, mm -hmm, "Yep." <laughs> so. <laughs> Uh, everyone um, who's listening, the links for for the book, but also for contacting Amy, are going to be in the show notes. Amy, thank you so much for having been on Papa PhD. All the best for the continuation of your book launch, which I imagine now is a longer exercise than in normal times. Yeah, yeah, a little bit. Yeah, but thanks, David, so much. I appreciate being on the show. It was a great pleasure. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Papa PhD podcast. Head over to papaphd.com for show notes and for more food for thought about non-academic postgrad careers. 
I'll always be happy to share inspiring stories, new ideas, and useful resources here on the podcast. So make sure you subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts to always keep up with the discussion and to hear from our latest guests. Music